So let me just tell you right before the message, just real quick about the book of Revelation and what we're trying to accomplish as a church. We want to get through the book of Revelation, and there's so many details, and there's so much to that book that we don't want to miss anything. But if you haven't started, the foundation and the recap or, or the start of the book of Revelation started last week. And if you weren't here for that, you, might, you have to go online, listen to that message as it sets the stage or the tone for the rest of the book. Now, today for me, I get to give you a summary. Eventually, we're going to get into chapter 6, which is where all the, I'm going to call it all the nitty-gritty stuff is after we go out into chapter 6. But today and next week are summaries of, of the book of Revelation all the way up until next week, chapter 5, where we'll talk about heaven. So just keep that in mind because some people have asked, are we going to get into some of the details? The answer is yes, but today is more of a summary. In fact, it's a summary, and I'm going to work my way up into the rapture. And it's interesting to me because when I think of that word rapture, uh, I mean, it evokes all kinds of different emotions and feelings. And I want you to ask yourself that question this morning. What do you think of as we start this morning? What do you think of when you hear that word rapture as found in scripture? And I thought about it. Well, so I know that some people said, well, that word doesn't even exist in the Bible. Well, maybe we'll talk about that. I know that some people, because of all the press and all the predictions over the last centuries, people may roll their eyes and say, oh, gosh, Really? Some people may not even believe in it. Some people may say, ah, it's so far away, I don't know that much about it, so I haven't really thought about it. I don't know. I want you to ask yourself, what do you think of when you think of that word rapture? You know, there was a book published in 1988 by this author by the name of Edgar Wisenant, and it was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And there was a lot of warnings. A lot of people heeded the warnings. There was a lot of press around this book. There was a lot of attention that was given. And people were saying to pastors, hey, you, you, need, to, you need to preach out of this book, man. You, you need to tell people the truth, the reality about this rapture, that it's going to happen in 1988. That Jesus is going to come back, and he gave 88 reasons why the rapture is going to happen. And it was supposed to happen that year between September 11th and September 13th, which is also coincides with Rosh Hashanah for that year. Clearly a book of fiction, as evidenced by the fact that I'm still here and that you're still here. Wait, unless we were left behind. <gasps> that right. Well, after that day came and wait, uh, went, this, this author, Edgar Wisenant, published a second book called The Final Shout, 1989. And then that date came and went, and then he had a final shout in 1990, and then again one in 1994, and he probably would have still reading the final shouts if it hadn't been for the fact that uh, he unfortunately passed away. So a lot of people, you see, have predicted this events of the rapture, and because of all this negative press, some people will dismiss the idea altogether, which is really unfortunate, because it is a, a real event. It is a distinct event, and it is an event that we, especially today, and you guys know what I'm talking about, should pay attention to. And it's an event that has been given in detail in the book of John, chapter 14, and 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Corinthians, and then all into the book of Revelation. In fact, in Revelation, we see the chronology leading up to it, and in fact, just so you know, the book of Revelation, it's amazing to me because there's only two people in the Bible that were actually given a trip to heaven. One was the Apostle Paul, and the second one was John, who wrote the book of Revelation. 
And Paul was taken there and he was given it, he was, but he didn't give us any details. He just wrote about it and he kind of like teased us. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, this is what he says. I was taken to the third heaven and was caught up. That word is important. And was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. And then he says things that no one is permitted to tell. And when I read that, I'm like, it intrigues me. Like, oh, you can't tell me? But now I want to know, Paul. But he says, I can't tell you. It is too amazing. It is even unlawful for me to even talk about it. And the only way I can interpret that is if, Carlos, if I tell you, I'd have to kill you kind of thing. So that that is the apostle Paul. John, on the other hand, sees it. He's taken up, and he is commanded to write about it. And he does so in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, which we'll get to. And he gives us a detailed description of the book of Revelation. So John sees this vision of the, in the book of Revelation, and he sees this real, this full-blown, expanded vision of the glorious Christ. Prior to that, as you learned last week, uh, we, we learned that he had seen, John had seen, Jesus, without his exalted state, he had seen the teaching Jesus. He had seen the Jesus that did miracles, that was full of mercy and grace. And all of a, all of a sudden, he sees him in this exalted state. You may recall that John hears a voice. And it's amazing to me, the, just the imagery, but the way the wording here in Revelation is so key. It is so profound because every word matters. And he says that John hears a voice, but instead of listening to the voice he turns to see the voice close attention and he says the first things that he sees are seven lampstands and then in verse 13 of chapter 1 which is where i want to go back to and start it says and among the lampstands was someone like the son of man and we know from last week that the lampstands because the scripture tells us represent the seven churches and, and, and as I start this morning, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. This is important as we start. Jesus is among the lampstands. Did you catch that? Jesus is among the church. Some people believe that I don't need church to have Jesus in my life. Some people may want to say, yeah, you know, I don't need to go to church right now because I can do my thing. Some people may say, I'm not into church, but let me tell you, Jesus is into church. Amen, church? Jesus is among the church. He is in the middle of this room right now overseeing you and I. And if you want to be in the fellowship of believers where we can grow with one another, yes, you can have fellowship outside of this room. This is the Lord's house, but Jesus is among the church. And I don't want you to miss that this morning. Now, the next thing that I want you to notice with me, beginning in chapter 1, but then looking towards chapter 4, that there's three occurrences that happen to the Apostle John as he he writes. And before he writes about this tribulation in which the bulk of this book take up, starting in chapter 6, there's three occurrences. And these are the three occurrences. Simply this, the first one, John is commanded to write. We learned that last week. John is called to heaven. He is caught up to heaven. We'll talk about that. And then John is captivated by glory. So first of all, he has to look down because he has to write. Then he has to look up because he has to, you know, he was called up. And then he looks around and he describes the glories of heaven. So let's pick up chapter 1, verse 19 this week. And then you'll notice that John is commanded to write. And it says, write, therefore, what you have seen. 
what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars, and we learned that last week, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. And he gives us the, the clues, right? The seven stars are the angels of the, of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But notice that first command. Write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Now, this is so important because it is exactly what John does in this book. This is how this book is laid out. Verse 19 of chapter 1 becomes the outline for the entire book. So this is pivotal, which I, is why I'm spending some time with it. And as you look at it more carefully, it says right there for what you have seen. And John did that in chapter 1. He saw a vision of Jesus, and he writes that down, the one like the Son of Man, it says. And he writes the details of what he has seen. And he's, again, he's never seen Jesus in this state before, so he's vastly different. And then secondly, he is told to write the things which are. And John does that in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Those are the things that are going on at that time to the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, these seven churches that were written about in chapters 2 and 3 are actual literal congregations in the time of John. And they were in Asia Minor. They were all within 100 miles of one another. And it's what we call today modern-day Turkey. So again, there were actual living congregations at the time of John. Now, I have to tell you that we're not going to spend a lot of time going into detail in those seven churches because we've done series on that before. But if you're interested in the seven churches, and we can send you a link with all the messages about the seven churches. So you don't want to miss that. They're so important. But what I do want to review about those seven churches and that is so fitting is that those churches, again, are represented by lampstands. And do you guys remember the time when Jesus says that you are the light of the world? That you and I are lampstands? Have you ever thought of yourself as the light of the world? Have you ever given that any thought? Have you ever thought of yourself when you walk into a room, hey, I am the light of the world? What does that do for you? It's so important that we, we also recognize that this morning because there's a lot of people out there that are in darkness. And we don't want to spend a lot of time what that means, but I think you guys can interpret that how you interpret that. But they're trying to find their way out of that darkness. And, and I wonder how many of those people are looking at God's people and saying, where is their light? Because if they see darkness in us, there's not a lot of hope for them, is there? You know, it's kind of like this lighthouse that I read about in Florida. I read about this some time ago, and it said that in this lighthouse, it was so beautiful, but one of the glass panes broke one time, so they had to replace it. And they didn't have the right glass at the time because it was so pretty, that, but in order to re preserve it and also from preserve it from the light going out, they had to replace that window with a pane. So they used a piece of tin on one, one side to keep the light going. The only problem, as you might imagine, that from one direction there was a dark spot. And oftentimes, ship trying to find the harbor heading in that direction would have a hard time finding it because of that dark spot. And I wonder if we are the light of the world, I wonder if we have any dark spots in us. And when people are trying to navigate this world looking for that hope, and they're looking, some of us, to us and the church, and if they look at us, and because of our dark spots, they can't find it. Folks, we are the lampstand. Don't miss that this morning. 
And Jesus holds the lampstand and walks in the midst of the lampstand. He is among you. So John says, write the things which you have seen, the vision in chapter 1. Write the things which are the things of the church in chapters 2 and 3, talking about lampstands. And then going back to verse 19, the last phrase says, and what will take place later. Now, in the Greek language, that word later is the word metatauta, which means after these or after this, metatauta. And that's how John writes the book, the things which are, the things which you have seen, and the things which will be metatauta after this. Now we can actually go to chapter 4. Open up your Bibles to chapter 4, verse 1, because John was commanded to write, and this is what he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now if you and I were reading the Greek text, it would say metatauta at the beginning and at the end. So after these things, after what things? After the vision when he saw in chapter 1, after the message that Jesus gives him in the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Now, John is suddenly is in heaven, and John is in the presence of God, and John sees it, and he sees a throne. But I, I want you to follow me here. The church has been the main focus in chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Revelation. In fact, 19 times the word church appears in those chapters. It's Jesus and the church. It's Jesus and the church. Now, suddenly in chapter 4, after these things, the church, it is as if it disappears. It's not even seen. It's not even spoken about. It's not, it's not even mentioned until the end of the book of Revelation when Jesus comes back and his kingdom is developed here and the heavens here on earth is put in place. That's when the church, the word church appears again. But from chapter 4 on, it is gone, folks. In fact, the very last mention of it is right before this verse, chapter 4, verse 1, happens in verse, I mean, chapter 3, verse 22. And this is what it says. And listen to this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, he's been talking to us this whole time. This whole thing about lampstands and all these things that he's been saying to the churches, it's for you and for me. Yet it's the last mention of the book. Now it's metatauta. After this, after the things of the church, in fact, it seems like the church age has run its course. So those are the three divisions in the book of Revelation. That is how it's laid out. And now John is instantly, boom, caught up into heaven. And I believe we would call that the preview of coming attractions. This is a depiction of the rapture of the church. And it is, if this language is somewhat familiar to you because you study the Bible here in verse 1 of chapter 4, you might find it very similar to what it says in 1 Thessalonians, that i like to read that to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, it says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed, some translations say ignorant, about those who sleep in death, so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, what we need to know about the scripture is that the Thessalonians, the, the, the church in Thessalonica, were all worried 
They knew that Jesus was coming back. They believed Paul when he was teaching them that, but they were concerned because they had friends, as you and I do, friends and relatives who have already passed away. So they were wondering, what about them? Are they going to miss out on the coming of the Lord? And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand me. They're not going to miss the coming of the Lord. They're going to be there. In fact, they're going to see it first. And then in verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It seems that our relatives who have preceded us, who have gone into heaven, they're not going to miss it. They're going to see it first. And then listen to verse 17. So powerful. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be, and there's this word, caught up. We'll be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Are you encouraged? You know, I hear people all the time, really, when we get into the subjects, like the word rapture is never in the Bible. Or I could say, well, the word Bible is not in the Bible either. But I can tell you that the teaching or the idea or the doctrine, it's actually there. You know, the word caught up in the Greek is the word harpazo. Harpazo. Harpazo shows up 18 different times in 13 different verses in the New Testament. And when you translate that word harpazo, four times it means to catch up. Three times it means to take by force. One time it's translated to snatch away or to snatch, to catch away, to pluck or to pull. I I think you guys get the idea. It means to grab something suddenly harpazo. In fact, there's this guy named Jerome. And when Jerome translated the New Testament from the Greek into the Latin, which, uh, which was around 400 AD, the Bible of the church until then, until that Reformation, that's the translation, he translated the word harpazo to be caught up by the Latin word raptor, raptus, or rapier, which means to seize or to catch. So if you're saying that the word rapture is not in the Bible, well, all of our Recent translations, even King James all the way to NAV, NASB, whatever Bible you have probably in your hands, yeah, you're right. You're not going to find it there. But if you're going to read the Latin Vulgate, it's right there. The word harpazo or raptus or rapier. So now listen to verse 17. I found this translation by this guy named Wust, which was basically a Greek scholar, and he was a teacher at the Moody Bible Institute. His name was Kenneth Woost, and he translates verse 17, and it doesn't get any more graphic than this. This is what he says. We shall be snatched away forcibly in masses of saints, having the appearance of clouds for a welcome meeting with the Lord in the lower atmosphere. That helps me understand it a little better. And what is written by Paul in Thessalonians, is experienced by John when he is called up and says, come up here. It is a voice like a trumpet. It says, come up here, which illustrates that what will happen to God's people when the church age is gone. So then in Revelations chapter 4 and 5, the church is in heaven. We'll talk about heaven next week. The church is safely established in heaven, tucked away for a seven-year honeymoon. At least that's what I'm calling it. Meanwhile, there is a seven-year tribulation going on here on earth, which we're going to get into. After that seven years, Jesus will return to earth to stop this judgment. There's going to be a war going on, and then we're all going to come back with him. Meanwhile, during those seven years, back at the ranch, back on earth, 
chapter 6 through 19 is the worst possible tribulation period on earth that anyone has ever seen in history. And according to Jesus, worse than any other time in history, God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And folks, we don't talk about that that much anymore. Nobody wants to hear about sin anymore. Yet we know there will be a day when that is going to happen. And I have to be honest with you, I'm having a real hard time imagining what that may look like considering what we're going through today. And I think you may agree. So John is commanded to ride. John is called to heaven. Third and finally, John is captivated by glory. Once he's there, we're starting in verse 2, some really, God, I mean, if you really close your eyes and you read the scripture and you try to imagine the things that are going on in heaven, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of confusing on one end, but then you, you start to realize that there's no other way but to worship Jesus. It says that once John says, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting in it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Some of your translations say Sardius. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Just think of that beauty. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. which symbolizes purity. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, here we go again, seven lamps were blazing the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the thrones were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and the back. So John, just let that sink in for a second if you have some imagery in your mind. That's powerful to me. John is caught up in heaven. And notice what is the first thing that catches his attention. It wasn't his aunt and uncle that had preceded him. It was a throne. You know, it's been said that there's three surprises that you're going to find in heaven. One, who's there. Two, who's not there. And you're going to be surprised that you're there. I'm totally kidding. But, <laughs> you know, I think right now it's, it's important to also know because we all have loved ones that, that we want to see in heaven. And if you're wondering where all those people are that you want a reunion with, that's going to come. But first, there's a throne. Throne is mentioned 13 times in chapter 4. So that is a dominating feature of heaven. It is the throne of God. And don't miss this. It is the control of God. It is the sovereignty of God. He sees the throne and the ones who sat on it. And I love that imagery. I love that, 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 that mind that I can look at it. And the first thing I see is the throne and the one sitting on it. In fact, Dwight L. Moody used to say about heaven, he said, it's not, it's not about the jeweled walls that we just read about or the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It's just going to be being with God. Being with God, that is why heaven is more than a what or a where. It is a whom. It is where you will be because that's where he, our God, our Lord and, Lord and Savior will be. Listen to John chapter 14. Starting in verse 1, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. 
In my father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And listen carefully. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. That's heaven. And John sees it. And then notice how he describes God. He describes God in this indescribable, in appearance of stones. He, did you notice that he uses a jasper stone and a sardius or, or basically a ruby? I mean, these are stones that are not just stones. They're, they're particular type of stones. They were the first stones and the last stones in the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. Everything in the book of Revelation is on symbols, and they all have a meaning. You know, the jasper stone was clear like a diamond. But notice the, the, the stone, the ruby, the sardius stone. It's kind of that stone like a, this translucent reddish stone. And we don't really know why it's there, except that I'm sure it's to remind us of the redemption of the blood that we find through Jesus Christ. And then he sees 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones, like an ancient courtroom. It's kind of like the court of a king. And, and you have to know that number 24 is representative, and it's illustrated in the fact that in the law of Moses, there were 24 orders of the priesthood. So if you study all that, it's, it all starts to make sense. And then they put, they had crowns on their head. But the crowns they had on their head were like those crowns that were given to victors in the Greek games, which seemed to indicate that the elders had been judged and given a reward for doing the right things. And, you know, there's been a lot of speculation as to who the actual elders, those 24 elders are. And there's two major views in this, okay? And I don't think they're essential, but I think it's important to review them. They represent the church that was raptured prior to this time and obviously is rewarded in heaven. The second view is that they are angels who have been given these very large responsibilities that have been picked for, for the long time. So while there's tribulation going on on earth through chapter 6 and 19, there's adoration, and that's where we're at today, adoration in heaven through chapters 4 and 5. Now, did you notice in that verse 1 where John says, After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. You see, a door standing open in heaven. You see, it's not a pearly gate like all those jokes. It's not St. Peter with a clipboard taking notes to see if you're going to make it. Peter has nothing to do with you getting into heaven. And has, Jesus has everything to do with you, with you getting into heaven. Remember, he is the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let me go back to that verse, which many believe is the first promise in the New Testament of the rapture of the church given by Jesus. He said to his disciples, remember, do not let your hearts be troubled in John chapter 14. I just read that to you. Also, it's important to know that he was in the upper room with his disciples when he told them this thing. And verse 3 of that, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me. Did you guys get that language? He says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming to take you where I am. He didn't say, I'll send for you. I'm, he says, I'm coming. I will return and I will come for you. And you have to understand that at this point, think of the disciples. They were completely bewildered. I mean, we get to understand it a little better. But for them, listening for the first time, first of all, they thought they were getting a Messiah, a king, someone that was going to rule. They didn't know anything that, about the crucifixion. It hadn't happened. They certainly didn't know about the resurrection. Mind blown. And all of a sudden, Jesus is telling them, hey, I'll come back for you. Wait a minute. Where are you going? So think of how bewildered they are. 
And then he just tells them, hey, I'll be back. Anyway, I, I had to. <laughs> Let me ask you that question again. What does the word rapture evoke in you now? Rhetorical, but do you dismiss it? Do you roll your eyes? Do you like, yeah, eventually I'll get there? Folks, it is a real event that is going to happen that we need to be ready for. Second question, are you ready? And if you're ready, what do you want to be caught doing when you get caught up? Arguing? Finding hope in all the wrong places? Or looking for love in all the wrong places like that song says? You know, I know people that find hope in a $2 lottery ticket. I know people that find hope in a position, in a title, in status. Yet, we have a living hope that we are called to. We have a living hope, and it is in heaven. And when we have the mindset of heaven, it changes everything about what we do down here. That's better than any hope we can manufacture or buy. That is, that is amazing to me. You know what I'd rather hear than anything else from God in a time like this? What John heard in chapter, in verse one of chapter four. Come up here and I will show you. That, folks, is my living hope. And I pray this morning that as we try to wrap our heads around this very complicated scriptures in the book of Revelation, that it, it doesn't matter if you have a some questions on what happened here and what happened there. The real question is, are you ready? If this event is real and you believe that it's real, are you ready to go? Or is God going to say, come up here, I will show you, and you're like, I'm there. Is that your living hope? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your reminder this morning, Lord, that you are coming back for your church. Lord, and in a time like this, Father, Lord, sign me up. I can't imagine a time where we would go through a tribulation more than what we're going through now. So we need you for that, Father. And even now as I speak, I know that you're calling out to your people, calling out to your sons and daughter and asking them to make that decision for themselves this morning and to decide for themselves if they are ready. Lord, I know how you work, Father. I know that you're speaking to people's hearts, that you are faithful, and as such, Lord, I pray that they would endeavor to choose you, to recommit, to find you for the first time, to reach out to you, to cry out to you, to say, Father, I'm ready. Lord, that whatever they may be, may be going on in their lives, that they would focus this moment on you. And that you would be faithful to continue to speak to them through the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, saying, son, daughter, say yes to me, even again. Repent of your sins. Repent of everything that you've been doing and come back to me. I'm waiting for you. And if that's you this morning, I just want to pray for you. I just want you to be honest with yourself and respond to God. And I, by the way, I'm not going to ask you to either raise your hand. This is so personal. I'm not going to ask you to come up here. I just want to pray for you. And if that's you in your heart, just say this, this prayer. Father, I recognize that I have erred. 
I recognize that I have missed the mark sometimes, Lord, and I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your mercy, Father. I'm thankful for your forgiveness, Lord. And I promise, Lord, and I pray that as best as I know how, I will recommit my life to you right now. And if that's you this morning, again, without anybody looking up, with every single eye closed, with every head bowed, if that's you, I just want to pray for you. Just raise your hand and put it down. There's no obligation. Just, I see your hand. Praise Jesus. Anybody else? See your hand. Thank you. Father, you see those hands. Any of the ones that haven't raised it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would come before them, Lord, that you would guide them and that you would lead them in the way that you would have them go. In Jesus' name I pray.